Hi and welcome to Let's Talk About Cities, a podcast dedicated to making complex topics in architecture and urban design more accessible. In today's episode, we'll talk about self-initiated housing, starting by trying to find a definition, giving some historical background information, and exploring the different motives why people engage in projects like that. We will discuss the different ownership and financing models, and also go into detail with one self-initiated housing project that was realized in Vienna in 2015, Lisa. We will also discuss self-initiated housing more critically and explore why it's not available to many. I'm Katharina. And I'm Matthias. We hope you'll enjoy today's episode. Let's talk about cities. are defined as a collective term for all construction activities that are neither carried out by a single private builder nor initiated by a public or private developer. That definition is from Simone Kleser, who um, wrote about Baugruppen in an architectural magazine. And I think it gives a good introduction to what Baugruppen means. To be honest, we found it quite difficult to find a proper definition for today's episode. And after some research... And a translation, above all, perhaps. Yeah. And, and also because even between Germany and Austria, there are two different words being used, Baugemeinschaft and Baugruppen. Exactly. So for all German speakers out there, um, you might understand our struggle, but... Um, we now agreed on self-initiated housing for today's episode, and there's many more, but um, I guess we'll just go with that one for today. Yeah. And um, to maybe describe it in my own words, I think, um, or how I would describe it to my friends and, and maybe family, it's, it's a group of people coming together that share a certain interest and that want to develop a building together where they also uh, will be living later on <laughs> together. And um, they either do that all by themselves or collaborate with the developer and later on um, either uh, yeah, buy the house again from this developer, but will go later on. Yeah, you, you'll I will explain these two exactly. different models, mm -hmm. right? But you've also looked into the, the um, characteristics of different types of self-initiated housing associations. So mm -hmm. could you? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, it's also from Simone Kleser from this article, which I found very um, inspiring or um, I, I think it gives a good insight to uh, self-initiated housing. And um, she defined those different groups and maybe I can go into them a bit. So there's professionally initiated groups, special interest groups, groups of a certain life situation, multi-generational groups and community groups. And of course, the article is in German, so I, <laughs> I translated them. But um, I think it gives a good overview and starting with professionally initiated groups, maybe the main motive of people coming together as that kind of group is um, to reduce the amount of money they spend and also um, that they feel like they can 
um, maybe they spend the same amount of money they would in another apartment. They feel like they can get more out of those self-initiated housing projects and also afford apartments that might be more fitting to their actual needs. But, but why professionally? What does that word denote in this case? Yeah, um, I mean, I didn't do those uh, definitions, so I think we would have to ask um, Simone Kese for that. But um, it is bound to, according to her, this group is bound to money and... Um, right, but what, what, what it could be, because there's also a difference in different cities how the term is um, applied or used. So in, in Berlin, um, it's quite common that the, the groups are actually initiated by architects. So uh, architects find a plot Mm -hmm. and develop a project for the plot. And then when the project is, is developed already, uh, at least in its concept, they then invite people to uh, become a part of it, mm -hmm. of the Paukope. Mm -hmm. So in, in other cases, rather, it's a group that then finds an architect to realize their mm -hmm. concept. Exactly. In the example that we'll uh, later go into in more depth, they also did it like that. They came together as a group and then found an architect mm -hmm. that they worked together with Maybe now I'm being too fast, but oftentimes those groups um, are of a certain um, milieu, if you can say so. And uh, you can actually oftentimes find architects there. So, um, um, Right. Yeah. But, but so maybe that's uh, a bit of what one understands under special interest group. Yeah, they share a certain lifestyle, one could say. And um, she argues that... They, they have a certain idea of how they want to live and um, also maybe put an emphasis on a certain topic like uh, sustainability is oftentimes one could also be diversity, for example. If it's sustainability, they want to put a special emphasis on being energy efficient and ecologically friendly. Mm -hmm. So this could be um, the special interest group. And then if we go on to groups of a certain life situation, um, It's more about the how they organize themselves within the group rather than the dwelling itself. So, for example, it could be elderlies living together that share certain needs but don't want to go into a care home, for example. So they um, construct the infrastructure they need or the amenities themselves and then um, therefore don't have to, yeah, as I said, go to a care home, for example. Mm -hmm. um, maybe... Uh, fitting for that is also the multi-generational group. Um, I think some may have heard of that already. It's uh, elderly and young youngsters living together. And um, it oftentimes, it's also this um, generational living, known as this generational living, that um, the younger people are paying less, but therefore pay with their time in helping the elderlies with their daily needs or it could also be in helping them with um i don't know fixing technical issues or whatever they right. might yeah. need help with and then also of course the elderly taking their time and showing the youngsters uh, other things that they might not know yeah so so, so. that's um a concept that isn't only applied to to self-initiated exactly. housing associations, but kind of furthers the interaction between generations. Exactly, exactly. And then lastly, there's community groups. According to Klesa, again, 
Um, so I want to make clear that it's not me that <laughs> found those groups, but her. Um, these groups don't only care about creating dwelling for themselves, but also um, filling gaps that the, that they see that the city structure has. For example, they contribute certain apartments for marginalized groups as, for example, refugees. And then that is part of their project that, for example, two or three apartments are reserved for that purpose only. So I think that was an overview of what there is. And I hope that by now you have a better idea what self-initiated housing is. But maybe we can take a step back and actually look into the history of co-living and self-initiated housing. Um, Matthias, maybe you want to explain a bit about that. I know you read a lot. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, there is a larger context of co-housing or collective housing. Um, one might ask um, if it's a new phenomenon with Bauk Open, so we thought giving a bit of the, the development history uh, can help to understand where the roots of the concept lie. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, it may be argued that the concepts of self-initiated housing to come together and build something together and co-living as well um, are as old as civilization itself. By their definitions, they definitely apply to housing structures that were in early tribal and nomadic societies. Um, but we, we will concentrate here on their modern origins and using apartment buildings. Mm -hmm. So one of the earliest examples of co-living is uh, Central Bygningen in uh, Copenhagen. Um, it was built between 1903 and 1905. It's a five-story building with 26 apartments and it's an independent part of a larger complex. It used to have a swimming area, a central kitchen, a cold storage space and a washing room in the cellar, as well as staff and food elevators to the apartments. Um, a similar concept was realized with Hem Gordon in Stockholm in 1906. Its purpose was to achieve lower costs, higher standards and more time for the residents especially for the women who it was hoped would therefore have more time for employed work as well as caring for their families. Um, and as was written in a newspaper for bourgeois women at the time, the worrying rise in living costs, which threatens to turn especially our capital into a for less well-off people near existentially dangerous society in which to dwell, must finally produce a counter-movement of the beleaguered bourgeoisie, which to some degree hinders an immodest capitalist rule, a way of life misdirected towards desire for luxury, and a wretched city council from further embittering the existence of the small wage earners with the shadows of economic concerns. One such counter-movement is the initiation of the central kitchen idea, which has its, its origins in the practical America. Mm -hmm. So it was, it, to me, it sounds really like a movement or like activism taking place. And, and, and Yeah, certainly. I mean, that was part of the, the, the um, zeitgeist mm -hmm. of uh, um, organization of the working class. Here it's a bourgeois newspaper and and I think that's very interesting because it has a very strong link with the Baukopen or, mm. or self-initiated housing associations of today, which we'll get into more later. But this idea of um, 
reducing the time spent on, for example, cooking by having a central kitchen with mm -hmm. food elevators to the apartment so that the women could either spend more time with their family and their children or also um, actually w working, which then, of course, uh, through the First World War um, also became more prevalent as the men were off fighting in the war. But those were ideas at the time also driven heavily by social democratic parties mm -hmm. uh, that would then after the first world war obviously um, have a lot of success therefore it actually fits very well to our previous episode of red vienna i think yeah and you can see that that this idea of um, uh, sort of different forms of provision of housing um, were very prevalent at the time so if the the red vienna was an example of top-down kind of paternalistic pr provision of housing the state taking care of um the needs um this is more the 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 bottom-up approach of people taking it into their own hands and also having a demand of how they want to live and and sharing those ideas how how they want to improve their own living situation yeah. and wanting to be part of it yeah Precisely, which obviously is also um, an effect of um, paradigm shifts of the previous and beginning centuries um, of the individual uh, gaining mm -hmm. importance. But the, the above examples that we gave of the one kitchen houses um, are examples of co-living houses or collective hus, which they're known as in Scandinavia. And those were followed in different ways throughout the century. Uh, like the Isokon in, in London, for example, but they lacked the aspect of participation in planning. They were still ideas mainly proposed by, by architects uh, to try them out. So they still have that top-down element. Um, and it's more difficult to find the modern origins of self-initiated housing, where the people themselves participate. So um, as we mentioned in the episode about Red Vienna, There were, for example, housing initiatives born out of desperation during and after the First World War, the Siedlebewegungen, mm. and the wild settlers. But those were rather detached houses or row houses. And we want now to focus on self-initiated housing in the form of apartment buildings. And that appears to stem out of several different historical movements and also further socio-cultural paradigm shifts. So... For example, there are the housing cooperatives, uh, which have had worldwide success. And in Austria and in Germany, they are particularly uh, common. In uh, Austria, they make up 15% and in Germany, 10% of the respective house markets. Um, their origins date to the second half of the 19th century, as cooperatives were founded to supply the working class with affordable housing. And um, after a new law lowered the liabilities of cooperatives, and conditions for loans improved in 1889, they became more viable and grew in numbers. And then after stagnation during the First World War, they became prominent again in the 20s, before inflation and financial crisis again made their implementation difficult. Mm -hmm. um, But maybe you can go a bit into the difference between um, housing cooperatives and self-initiated housing. Yeah, yeah. So one difference between cooperatives and self-initiated housing is in the possibility for participation. Again, um, housing cooperatives are often larger associations, sometimes very large, that build housing in which people may live, provided they have bought 
uh, a membership in the association and there isn't necessarily an active participation and self-initiative in decisions of what and how to build but rather representatives who are chosen by the members who run the association and Another difference is in the principal purpose of the model chosen. So housing cooperatives were formed mainly as an economical counter movement to the unsustainable housing market. Self-initiated housing models, while oftentimes also cheaper long term than other options on the housing market, can have many different purposes and goals, um, just as you explained with, mm -hmm. with the examples of the different kinds of groups. The roots of self-initiated housing are also found in the communes and shared accommodations popularized in the counterculture movements of the 60s. Examples of those range from squatters, Israeli kibbutzim and flat sharing to eco-villages, ashrams and other utopian communities. But unlike such initiatives, self-initiated housing groups are not principally driven by political or cultural aims and they don't seek to establish communities separated from mainstream society. Rather, they seek to be integrated with their surroundings and are driven by pragmatism. Their proponents and participants are also of another more mainstream character than the counterculture movements in terms of socioeconomic class, age and culture. Mm -hmm. So the roots of self-initiated housing are actually um, quite far back. But maybe you can talk a little bit about um, examples that are more recent and um, are comparable to self-initiated housing or alternative models. In the 70s and in the 80s, there began to crop up um, some models that are more similar to what we understand today as, as self-initiated housing. Um, in Germany, there's the term Wohnprojekte for um, some such initiatives. And it seems the word project in this case uh, denotes that they were experiments and individual projects here and there trying out a certain model. And they oftentimes grew out of also this alternative scene, mm -hmm. um, but uh, started to try to formalize the concepts. So they, they still were not part of the mainstream. It was a peripheral phenomenon, but they are, for example, less radical successors of, of the uh, squatter movement that um, had squatted houses and realized it didn't work long term. So tried to develop a model that would work long term. And um, uh, also from other communal initiatives that sought self-governed and collective ways of living in the 70s and 80s. And that's part of a larger um, topic of participation and, and by, by whom it's driven. So a lot of those projects uh, were also driven by architects and planners who who found the concept interesting. Um, I think a, a broader discussion on participation in planning on its virtues and its discontents would really be useful as context for this entire episode, but it would also completely go beyond its scope. So mm -hmm. we can make a separate episode about that, um, but it's something I think is very interesting. Um, so an example of, of such a Wohnprojekt was in Austria, however, um, the Austrian architect Otto Kaul uh, concerned himself very much with participative planning and, and what it 
could achieve. In 1968, he won a competition to design a residential project with 70 units in Hollabrunn. And inspired by the Dutch SAR, which stands for Stichting Architecten Research, he involved the future residents in the planning and realization of the buildings. So the principle of the SAR was to employ a high degree of industrialized methods in the construction of the load-bearing systems of the building, and that would leave room for individualization of the rest. Mm -hmm. And what happened with this project? As I remember, it was uh, quite successful in, in its aim, precisely that of um, employing a high degree of industrialization to achieve flexibility within the building, but also uh, in, in involving the residents. So um, um, we'll also then, for example, try this process in um, a Gemeindebau, so in social housing, which mm -hmm. was very special, of course, because social housing has a strict kind of process and to begin also in social housing to involve future residents in, in decisions was very um, innovative mm -hmm. and, and also difficult. But so he did have some success with this and then roughly 10 years after um, that competition in Hollabrunn, he was contacted and hired by a group of young families and they wanted him to help them to design a house for them to live in to together and they wanted to have a say in all decisions in the process. So here he had already made a reputation uh, and then, however, was contacted by a group. So that's one of the very earliest examples, I would say, of mm -hmm. the self-initiated housing. And the name of the project is Wohnen mit Kindern, so living with children. And as it implies, the aim was a building especially suitable for families with children. It has two playrooms, workshops and a table tennis room. It was also a further experiment in flexibility, so it allowed for the adaptation of walls and even of the ceilings to specific needs or wants. Mm -hmm. If we're already in Austria, I think super many people have heard of the Sackfabrik. And I think it would be really nice if you could go a bit deeper into that project, as mm -hmm. it also is not only well known, but also um, goes a bit further back in history. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's the largest and perhaps best known example of self-initiated housing in Austria. Um, der Verein für Integrative Lebensgestaltung, so in English the Association for Integrated Lifestyles, was formed already in the mid-80s by a group of people looking to find an alternative to the expensive housing market. Um, and they also wanted to get away from the focus on traditional family units. The architects, the collective BKK2, are themselves also members of the association and they together planned uh, within the association, realized and are now still running the project. It was finished in 1996 and has an abundance of shared spaces such as roof gardens, a swimming facility, a daycare and a restaurant. And some of those are even open to the public. Mm -hmm. And as I remember, there was also a second project, Missackfabrik, just yeah, nearby, exactly. right? Yeah. But that came later on. It came later on to, to sort of, um, I believe, fill in some gaps. They added some more public spaces, uh, for example, a library. But it was also a matter of um, increasing the number of flats to improve the economy of the association. Mm -hmm. In the 70s and 80s then, there are lots more examples in, in Germany as well. So there is, for example, one of my favorite examples, the Öko House in Berlin, close to the Tiergarten, 
from uh, Frei Otto. Why is it your favorite example? Because it's um, such a radical example of this idea of the architect as someone who, who creates uh, just the framework um, for, for people who then decide how they want to live. So what it did was he designed a structure much like a shelf. Mm -hmm. So there's the bearing structure of columns and um, slabs mm -hmm. and also the installations, but nothing more. So there's this shelf basically, which then uh, nine different architects, I think it was, or even 12, nine or 12, um, together with their respective um, clients filled. Mm -hmm. So they also had to, to some degree, discuss how they would adapt to each other, but they didn't have to think, for example, about um, how to, how to design the uh, load bearing structure and therefore um, were very free in the design mm -hmm. of the individual units. I think I really understand what is so intriguing for you um, when it comes to that project. But what I also, I think we always have to also think of, of time with those projects and, and also how long lasting um, those apartments can be because they might be perfectly fitting for a certain family and they know exactly what kind of... Um, floor plan they wish to have but what happens after and what happens um like is it easily is it is the structure and the construction so flexible that it can be rearranged or yeah, yeah. i mean that's the point then if you look at the example of, of otto kaul mm -hmm. with with having the the um load bearing structure is not easily changed but of course, yeah, but then but designing the it that within. way allows for a large amount of flexibility inside the flats, and not just in the in the initial design, but mm -hmm. other, uh, but also uh, in the future, and also in the example of Frei Otto, um, the load the load bearing structure is there, the framework is there, and then there is a, a very large degree of freedom within that. So th yeah. um, those are examples of again of experiments that were prevalent in the 70s and 80s but then it took a while for these concepts to to reach a large enough audience and also enough acceptance to actually start to be incorporated also in um, city planning authorities for example and there again um, the the roots are in germany mm -hmm. and in two cities uh, in particular that are considered pioneers and uh, they are Tübingen and Freiburg so in the 90s they took very different approaches and are therefore also very interesting they each had basically the same situation so after the Wiedervereinigung uh, in uh, in Germany the French troops that had been stationed there in in uh, a barracks area in Tübingen and in Freiburg since the second world war um, left the barracks and so they were empty and uh, the areas were to be developed and in the case of Tübingen the initiative came from the city government the planners envisioned a dense and mixed use city of short paths and small lots which was also quite early because those are things that we hear all the time now you know the, mm -hmm. the, the city of sm uh, short paths and small lots that lead to a lot of diversity in the architecture um, expression uh, and so on but they they already then wanted to um, 
to do this and the developers the investors and the professional developers at the time weren't that interested especially in the small lots and, and mixed use programs they didn't really see um, uh, profitability in that or also saw difficulties in the uh, execution of it and so therefore and the, the city government of Tübingen and the planning authorities saw precisely small and private associations as a very fitting um, alternative to develop these plots and so that's what they did they they um, they made sure to prioritize these small private housing associations and uh, supported them a lot in the development and it turned out to be a great success so they achieved a high diversity in the architectural um, expression um, very dense neighborhoods um, oftentimes a focus on uh, ecological sustainability and a very high standard but despite all of this they would also achieve up to 20 percent cheaper apartment prices compared to um, the existing market mm -hmm. and what about freiburg how was it there so in freiburg the initiative came from citizens it was already clear that the the french troops would leave the barracks area and there had already been um, in Freiburg protests because um, there was for a while a debate about whether to build um, a nuclear power plant. So there was already uh, this citizen structure for debate, discussion and, and protests. And um, in 1992 already some ideas were, were um, formed by the citizens for how to use this military barracks area in the future. Um, and they envisioned also, you know, a city of small paths, uh, a high focus on sustainability, ecological sustainability mm -hmm. and diversity. And then in 1994, and there was a civic association called Forum Fauban uh, e.V. that was created. And uh, at first <laughs> there were just a few people, but they, they, successively grew and uh, managed to massively influence the planning of that area uh, in accordance with with the goal uh, of ecologically sustainable development so in the end it has car free neighborhoods which was also very innovative and early at that time for sure yeah and it also has the first multi-family passive house in germany and uh, self-initiated housing associations then were were uh, again prioritized in the allocation of plots before investors and that also led to um, furthering other projects with an uh, ecological profile and what would you say what kind of effect did those projects you talked about now have for today or for later on they had a very large effect as other cities in germany but also abroad saw uh, how this concept could be applied at an urban planning scale. Mm -hmm. um, so in Hamburg, for example, where there were a lot of squatter movements in, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, um, there, there was an interesting case of, for example, on the Hafenstrasse by, by the harbor, obviously, where a house was um, being squatted and uh, the city government and, and uh, owners of the house uh, several times tried to remove them but um, after a very long struggle they 
manage to to uh, be allowed to actually buy the house and then to start to um, to renovate it and to become livable. And that, that also um, was a good example of how to um, get along with these squatter movements. In Berlin, it was similar in the 90s. Uh, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, there were a lot of empty and rundown flats, especially in the eastern part of the city. And uh, oftentimes they would be squatted. And then uh, there was a program of actually uh, subsidizing the, the the groups that had formed and, and squatted the houses to actually um, support them with money so that they could uh, themselves renovate the buildings. And um, I think that's was also it's, it's quite difficult to to believe now already 20, 30 years later and that there was that amount of cooperation mm-hmm. and, and goodwill. So in Hamburg, then, uh, since 2003, there's even been an agency of the city planning department that is entirely dedicated to self-initiated housing. Um, they provide advice on procedures and on official funding for associations. They help in the search of sites and they also allocate land belonging to the city. And uh, the city government of Hamburg has set the goal of uh, uh, 20% of the land that is in the possession of the city being allocated to self-initiated housing projects. Okay, so those are specially uh, reserved for uh, self-initiated housing groups. Yeah, and and I think that very well shows the the success of the idea and the concept and how to what degree it has been incorporated by um, public authority. Yeah, like the, the shift, how it's also being perceived by by the city and that it's not some funky people coming together and having some crazy ideas but actually um that they are taken seriously exactly which is also very important because uh in the 70s and 80s when you had these individual projects they were largely pilot projects again and again meaning they had to sort of um always start from the beginning beginning and learn and and deal with the problems that would arise. But if you have a structure, either public or it can also be um, obviously an, a non-public network, which sort of uh, collects this know-how and this knowledge and, and supports uh, people that, that want to get into this, um, that is, of course, very positive. So in Austria, for example, there's not such a thing of... of um, uh, a public authority specifically dedicated to self-initiated housing, but there is the private initiative uh, Initiative Gemeinsam Bauen und Wohnen, which means Initiative Collaborative Building and Living. It was started in 2009 and does precisely that. It supports people and groups interested in collaborative housing projects, and they also advocate for better conditions for the success of such projects. So they um, write studies and hold events to try to propagate for better laws and and processes within the city development in in Austria. However, um, if I may just jump in for a second, the first time it was... Uh, applied it was in 2011 um to to reserve a, a plot for only self-initiated yeah, yeah, housing I'm... projects and i think that already also helps a lot and propagates um, yeah yeah but but the difference is in that in hamburg 
there is um, a department that has that as its um, mission. Mm-hmm. And in in Austria, in this example, um, that's something that's been achieved partly thanks to this initiative um, that they have, uh, like in Freiburg, where the the um, civic association pressured the local government, they have brought it to a point where the city of Vienna has incorporated some of those ideas in particular developments. So in Aspenseerstadt or also in Sonnenviertel. But it's uh, not quite at the point of of the city of Vienna having a department dedicated to such concepts. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, there's an increasing number now of projects that are being planned uh, of self-initiated housing and also some very interesting ones that have already been finished in Vienna. And uh, one of them, Lisa, we will take a closer look at now. And it's also one that we've visited. Exactly. This is why I chose to take a deeper look into that. It's, uh, as you said, called Lisa. So, um, Leben in the Seestadt Aspen, which is living in yeah, Seestadt Aspen. For those of you who don't know Seestadt Aspen, it's an entirely new part of the city um, that has been developed the past uh, yeah, more than 10 years now. And the planning procedure has started way before that and um, it was quite special because on the one hand it's for super many people and um, also new workplaces have been created and I think we could make an entire episode of Sears at Aspen but also something special was that a subway has been um, newly constructed to to lead there even before the first residents have moved in so and then within this Um, master plan there was one plot that was specifically reserved for self-initiated housing uh, projects which also makes Lisa so special because it was the first time that this has been done in Vienna and I think later on we can uh, go into some of the difficulties self-initiated housing groups face one of them being the allocation of land and Mm -hmm. that of course is a good way to to help with that when you only reserve it for for the self-initiated housing groups. So Lisa was one of uh, five projects that have been selected in this uh, competition that was uh, made specifically for self-initiated housing groups. And besides Lisa, I just want to mention the names of the projects shortly. It was Jaspern, Brot, Pegasus and Seestern that were um, also selected, they all share a plot, and then together they um, they each develop their house uh, together with uh, different architects. But they did uh, from the start work together um, because they share the inner yard and um, have designed that together with the landscape architecture office. And as you said, we've actually had the pleasure to visit the project Lisa at the open house. It's a in, it's an event that, uh, due to Corona, not, but um, always took place once a year. Um, I think it actually comes from America and um, is this 
event where some buildings that are of higher importance or higher interest for the public, it's not only special projects like those self-initiated housing projects, but also maybe buildings from the state where you normally can't enter, where for that day they open their doors, therefore open open house. And um, then most of the times you get a tour by one person that knows the building better. And in that case, it was one resident that uh, led us around. So therefore we got a, a better insight on this um, project and therefore also chose it to talk about in depth for the podcast. So to just talk about the the um, architecture a little bit, in total there are uh, 42 residential units and two shared flats for elderly and also six commercial units in the ground floor zone. And all flats are oriented north-south with access to the apartments through the south-facing balconies. And that of course leads for the people meeting in those, um, it's like the hallway of the house just being outside and also being in the balconies. And that also leads to a lot of openness and um, meeting your neighbors quite regularly, which of course um, bounce back to this strong emphasis on having done this as a group and also having a strong bond with each other. I remember when we talked to one of the residents, she told us that they already moved into the house two years ago. They still had meetings once a week because there was so much to organize together and to to think about as being part of this association. So you can be sure that you will know those other neighbors very well after the whole design process and and there's so much to think of when developing a house so yeah that has to be kept in mind for sure so when visiting i noticed that some of the people have actually i'm not sure if it was just for open house or if they have that in general that they have put some kind of barriers in front of their windows because um the the doors to access the the apartment from the south are also huge glass windows and they make it possible to basically have a lot of transparency and to, to really look into the apartments. And I think some people feel that this might be too much of being able to look into the apartments and just not enough privacy. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's quite common in projects with access balconies or also in some cases when they when they are indoors corridors where um, for different reasons either for daylighting reasons to to actually get enough daylight into the apartments or to precisely to try to foster this community uh, aspect um, there are large openings and it's a difficult balance between community and privacy mm-hmm. right absolutely um, that that maybe sometimes I think it's higher degrees of uh, or, or higher chances of success in projects such as this, where the people know each other from before, from the uh, development process and are, are very much open to and focused on the idea of community. And also they are aware of what they're getting into because yeah. they have been involved in all the um, decisions that were made together with the architects. Exactly. And- but in other cases, it's um, sometimes maybe... Uh, you know, a brainchild of the architect having this idea of fostering community. And in the end, people block those windows or or so completely. Yeah. I mean, 
of course, you know, I cannot judge by only one visit um, how it actually works because maybe it was just for this open house thing that the people didn't want uh, just strangers to, to look in ter- into their apartments. I guess um, oftentimes what happens with city planning projects that are so interesting to so many planners that they get visited and visited so many times. There's so many surveys being done that the residents at some point just feel very like fed up with all those questions mm-hmm. and like sue animals that are being watched kind of mm-hmm. and like how do you work in this environment or at least I got that feeling also from the whole Seestadt Aspen itself or those yeah like pioneer projects that are being very visible to to the whole planner world yeah, yeah. I mean I think I think it's a, a case of boundaries being blurred between private and public and also in the sense of the fact that you have to spend a lot of time and energy on the project even after it's finished so the boundary between what is work and what is free time is also in a way blurred because it's almost like a work in itself yeah. to to be part of such a project and therefore i mean obviously you, you, they also have a lot of uh, shared spaces yeah i so, just wanted to go into that they have organized themselves in in different working groups and each of them um, share like take care of a, of a certain topic one could say one of them being finances the other one being communication to the outside um, and also those shared spaces and always in this self-initiated housing um, projects when it comes to shared spaces I think it's so cool what they offer because like the normal thing that outside of those projects might be I don't know, a washing room, for example, how it's very common in Sweden or a room to store your bike. But they are really thinking about what they want and as a community can create really great spaces. Um, for example, in, in Lisa, they, they offer varieties such as uh, rehearsal rooms, a workshop room, a sauna even. And what was especially fascinating for me was the food corporation and they are uh, buying from farmers such as uh, things that can be stored like uh, wine or um, other drinks or um, oats or rice or whatever stuff like that and um, and they have this room and then you can just have that as your private supermarket kind of and go there and be like okay um, my name is so and so and I I'm writing yeah, my name on the list and how many bottles of wine I took, for example. And it's this system based on trust um, because they all know each other. They know that the system only works when they can trust each other. And I think it's really great. But the point I wanted to make about the, the, the boundaries between public and private with the shared spaces is that in the shared spaces, there is a sort of boundary because they are viewed as shared spaces so it's quite clear that if you're there um, you're in a let's say semi-private sphere but the access balconies aren't necessarily so Mm -hmm. those are circulation spaces much like any kind of a staircase or elevator in any building where you're not necessarily in the mood to run into someone and uh, if you couple that obviously with with the fact that they have large openings towards this space 
Um, well, you can imagine if you if your apartment door was made of glass and anyone in the staircase could see into your apartment. It's um, quite a different thing to having designated shared spaces. Yeah, one has to be really open-minded for that and <laughs> wanting to commit to that. But I think now that you talk about boundaries, it's, I guess we'll also go into detail with that later on when maybe finding some of the points that can be criticized with self-initiated housing. So you mentioned in the beginning that there are basically two different models for for back open or for self-initiated housing associations. Yeah. Um, there was the one where you do everything yourself and the one where you um, Collab collaborate. collaborate with with established developers. So could you yeah. explain a bit more about them? The boundaries are a bit blurred, but um, you can you can differentiate between the ownership model. Again, it's a translation from German being Bauherrenmodell and also the developer model. Um, in German, it's Bauträgermodell. And um, maybe I can start with the ownership model. It's um, initially a, a group of people that are taking the responsibility for everything that is connected to the development of the building, both legally and economically. And then, of course, um, they're not standing there themselves and painting all the walls, or maybe they might be, but most of the time they are um, hiring someone for... Um, the execution of the building process. But and then after the actual construction, they can choose between being share owners of the buildings or, um, or of the apartments. And they also have to decide how to manage the community places. In the example I talked about before, Lisa, and uh, they have uh, established an association and that is most oftentimes the case. And they can either use those common rooms themselves or also rent it out. And um, the same goes for ground floor zone that um, is active, as we call it, or as many people call it. And if there's some kind of commercial units, they can also rent it out. And then, as I said before, the developer model, on the other hand, is uh, very different to the ownership model I just talked about. It's um, also a group of people coming together and um, having a vision and wanting to develop a house, but they cooperate with the developer. And that is because of many reasons. On the one hand, buying a plot requires a huge amount of money. So they face very high financial, financial risks. And also um, it takes so much time, not only... Uh, finding the land, but also all this organization. And um, you can imagine that putting that amount of money and time into a process is only available to some people and also is very stressful. Uh, and then cooperating with a developer can take away that kind of pressure. And then you at the same time have to see that those groups might have a lot less possibilities to be part or be an active part in the process mm -hmm. because they give away a lot of the responsibility and a lot of the financial pressure. And with that also goes 
a bit, I think they're saying, in mm -hmm. how to realize the project. But of course, it's easier and faster. So then there's another difference between those two forms um, of self-initiated housing. And that is uh, what happens if a flat gets vacant. And that, of course, is a huge uh, point because... Um, yeah, I think a question that many people ask themselves that hear about the concept. Yeah, because also I think what we have to put into the discussion is that groups that develop self-initiated housing are actually taking away that housing from the market and therefore... Well, not necessarily. Like That's the point of the different models. Exactly, there, right? but those are those people that are owners of the apartments or shareholders of the house are taking it away from the market. And then um, some have this ideology of um, going against uh, speculation. And if you are cooperating with a developer, however, it might be that um, he has or he gives the rights to the people that then own or rent the apartments to do whatever they want with it, for example, sell it again, and then gets a bit tricky. So in the ownership model, it is given back to the association and then they can uh, sell the shares again or rent it out. And in the developer model, the owners of the apartments have the right to sell their apartment when they move out. There's one exception, however, when uh, preemption has been agreed on. Yeah, of course, this difference is crucial because only preemption then can counteract um, speculation. Well, preemption or in the case of the ownership model, uh, because when you say they sell the shares, it is that they actually they sell the shares back to the association. Yes. And then the association uh, can sell them to someone who wants to move in. But that gives them a degree of control over who moves in. And it's not done on a speculative basis of earning a profit, but rather of having someone who fits this very particular group that has gone through this process together. So if someone new wants to move in, they want to make sure that they are compatible with exactly. the other people living there and the entire philosophy of the project. Mm -hmm. And that is such a yeah, huge point in, in many of the self-initiated housing projects I know because it's you might it's not as easy as one thinks to to get into this group kind of you have to be of a certain age or have certain skills or knowledge and your yeah, personality yeah i think just being interested in the plot itself is not gonna you're not gonna make it in the group um as you say, it really requires um, certain skills or personality or other that you're from a certain age um, to get into those self-initiated housing groups. They really know who they want or who fits in and who doesn't also. challenges obviously connected to this concept and maybe you could go through some of them yeah i mean i think i, I started with one already which is uh or may, maybe two even one of them being the financing of the project they actually got help from a developer and then later on i guess it's mainly about assembling a bought it back and they bought it back. They they published it on their website for 10.5 million euros. I think it's 
good to have a, a sum in mind. And they did that through um, partially through their own money and then um, through a, a loan. And also the uh, city of Vienna helped them. Um, with parts of the money, which is not so important now how they how they uh, acquired the money. And another um, challenge I have spoken about before is the allocation of land. I think uh, just having an idea of where to search for it, mm -hmm. it, like on the free market is super hard because professionally organized developers do only that and have a lot of experience and, and not only that but also um probably have larger um margins because they are looking for a profit and uh, therefore can afford a higher price for the plot and the prices for plots are uh, increasing very rapidly in most larger cities mm -hmm. yeah but, but i think it's really not only about the money but also the Yeah, the finding of the plot and and sure, yeah. being um, in competition with those developers is quite hard because they, of course, have, as I said, uh, a larger expertise, but also a larger network. And, sure. yeah. and then I'm it not really sure helps with, can... with such a thing as in Hamburg, where the city government have set a goal for how many should be reserved how many uh, plots should be reserved for uh, self-initiated housing groups. Absolutely. And now I just want to go a bit back to what I already started to talk about before. Um, this Because the city of Vienna saw that there's a conflict and that it's really hard for self-initiated housing groups to, um, to find land. And um, therefore... Um, they started to to do competitions and, or like to reserve plots, as I said before. And they did it the first time in Seestand Aspen in 2011. And it was a concept con competition. So the groups didn't have to have uh, ready-made projects, but they had to um, talk about like who is within the group, what are their main interests and also what makes the project stand out maybe mm -hmm. and yeah like have a concept yeah i think that that is really a key point of uh, when it when when those concepts get incorporated into the, the planning authorities and their plans that um it also gives them uh, a measure of control over what gets built so in vienna in in, in um all Uh, allocations of public land there's a competition to decide mm -hmm. who ends up building there and that gives them uh, that, that means that uh, contrary to other procedures it's not necessarily who pays the most for the plot or who's ready to pay the most but rather um, uh, competitions based on certain quality criterias yeah they had a catalog of criterias and um, also the stability of the group played a huge role there because um, now we can go to the third main challenges. The conflict within this structure can of course occur because it's um, most of the time people with completely, with maybe they share a certain uh, vision and interests, but Of course, yeah, when many people come together, they put a lot of money inside, they put a lot of time inside this project. 
um, at some point it will come to a conflict and um, therefore it's really, really crucial how, um, how well uh, the groups work together. And um, yeah, I mean, when we talked about it before, you told me that many groups actually in the end or many projects don't work out because of the groups. And I think that is also why there's a lot of talking and vision building before you actually uh, get the plot and put in the amount of money to really be certain that you want to go through with that. Yeah, exactly. I think it's quite common that, that the initial groups are formed and some people join and then later on exit the group and then other people come in and then at a certain point you reach the stage where um, there is more or less uh, a well-structured idea and you get to the point of actually uh, putting in the money and that's sort of a, a milestone mm -hmm. that you reach yeah maybe we can now come to an end but also i think it's really important to also talk a bit about or to critically view Baugruppen because um, when I first heard about uh, self-initiated housing, I was so amazed by the idea of people coming together and um, designing for their own needs and um, building this community based on a shared vision. But you oftentimes find the same kind of people within those projects. And that, of course, has um, reasons because not all can afford it time-wise and also money-wise. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, I think that, you that read a lot about that. That was our biggest takeaway also when we visited Lisa in Aspen-Seerstadt, that there was a feeling of, um, okay, this is really cool, but to whom is that available, mm -hmm. really? Um, to me, there are many parallels with that and... Um, sort of uh, participation in general or in urban planning because the question arises of to whom is that available who can make themselves heard in in such a context um, the terms or concepts are often appropriated to sort of um, appear open and, and democratic by planning authorities but quite often that is a picture being painted um, that doesn't really correspond to, to reality or to the real aims. So, um, yeah, self-initiated housing associations really appear to be an exciting uh, alternative with um, cheaper and also more innovative solutions than the, the existing market. Mm -hmm. And that's in a situation in which prices and rents are rising rapidly in most cities. And it coincides, obviously, with... Um, the state with social housing programs taking a step back and investor-driven developments um, taking over, mm -hmm. um, as can be seen in yeah most cities, uh, as we have also spoken about in, in, for example, the episode on gentrification. But as you say, it's really important also to, to um, shine a light on some of the more perhaps questionable aspects of, of any development and also of self-initiated housing projects. So the most obvious ones are 
economic aspects. Mm-hmm. Again, even if, as as uh, in the example given earlier, um, the apartments of self-initiated housing associations can be up to twenty percent cheaper um, than on the existing market, then even that is way too much mm-hmm. for many people. Um, and you also have to consider again, as you you mentioned, um, that those 20% then are likely to, to be paid for in time and in energy spent in the development process. And that, uh, also isn't available to, to anyone. Absolutely. You have to who find has that the time who has to... the time in, in their, you know, after work or, um, between taking care of their children or mm. uh, other, um, uh, activities. So it's still quite an exclusive alternative and also on a larger economical scale, uh, most self-initiated housing associations consist of private properties rather than rental apartments. There are exceptions, but generally that's the case. And that means that say, um, as you mentioned, it's difficult to find land. So quite often, um, depends on where, but in Berlin, for example, many of the self-initiated housing associations end up building on, uh, very central plots that are too small or tricky for larger developers to develop, mm-hmm. which means that they, they build on plots in the center of the city, um, on which otherwise social housing might be built and where there might be a precarious, uh, socioeconomic milieu already. Um, so there's a shift also from doesn't have to be social housing or, or private housing, but, but from rental apartments to private property, uh, which is important also to, to consider. And in the cases where this is also subsidized by the, the government, it means that tax money or also support, um, in, in terms of, um, advice or, or so is provided by the public authorities for something which ends up being private property. Mm-hmm. And I think that is also very, very important to, to think about. And furthermore, if they are, as is often the case, financing the projects with the help of loans from banks, it means this, these, uh, subsidies are in the end going to the banks. So you, you have to always, uh, ask where is the money coming from? <laughs> where does the money come from? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so this raises a political question in the end of the role of the state in the provision of housing. Mm-hmm. Should the state provide housing or should it be left to the free market? And, and the answer in this case seems to be very neo- neoliberal. Um, you know, there's no such thing as society. There are only individuals and these individuals have to become entrepreneurs and, and, um, provide for themselves. Mm-hmm. And there are also social aspects to consider. Um, Self-initiated housing is mainly an option for a limited group of people seeking self-realization and finding that in collectivity. So and also this crazy search for individualism that everyone wants to stand out. And exactly. now it's also about exactly. how do you live? And, yeah. So and there's also, of course, the debate about um, um, detached houses or suburbs as examples of what suburbanization or, or um, sprawl and its effects, uh, ecological and social. And in this case, rather than build a villa, um, or a row house outside the city, uh, people who want that, um, individuality rather come together in a group to build 
with the individuality of a villa, but in urban space in the center of the city, because they are urbanites and, and want to take a part of, of that life. And they bring with them a certain financial and social capital, which is seen as very desirable, both by the city government that want this urbanity and also by local businesses. And there we, we get to something we spoke a lot about in, in the episode on gentrification of um, different socioeconomic dynamics and how they can impact um, the, the uh, social structure of mm -hmm. the city. Um, these Baukopen then, for example, in, in, in Berlin, if they uh, build on such a difficult and small plot in the center of the city, that makes their arrival a potential threat to the socioeconomic structure of an existing area. But it's a threat then with a much friendlier face with focus on ecology and collectivity. And so then the investor driven developments that are more oftentimes seen as um, drivers of gentrification. Mm -hmm. So it's no wonder then that self-initiated housing is becoming more and more incorporated by authorities because it means that they can paint a picture of innovative and participative planning while actually minimizing their own share of the responsibility for the provision of housing and for city planning. And that way they can increase the value of their cities um, by furthering this uh, urbanity and also further individualization and privatization um, as, as values. Mm -hmm. And uh, there, there are also less common alternative models. So not everything is, um, um, you know, not, not all self-initiated housing projects are um, consist of private properties. There are also rental apartments sometimes. Um, the, the German Mietshäuser Syndikat or also its Austrian equivalent Habitat are examples of that. They have made a conscious decision to remove the buildings and the apartments that are built from the market, but really so um, they work on a basis of non-profit collective property, which means that the buildings of the housing associations that are part of the overall organization, the syndicat or habitat, are collectively owned by each housing association um, and the organization. They create a separate company for each um, individual housing association. Mm -hmm. And then within that separate company, the, the overarching organization, the Syndicator Habitat, have as many uh, voting rights as each housing association. And that um, secures the property long term, because if a particular housing association because of changed ideas or realizing that there might be profit in it or um, maybe because some members of the housing association changed and they have um, other ideas. If they get the idea that they want to sell the house or apartments for a profit, then the, the overarching organization, the syndicate or Habitat, uh, can veto that so that it stays uh, within the organization and stays rental apartments. Uh, so that's a bit of uh, a furthering of the idea of preemption, as you mentioned mm -hmm. earlier in the um, developer model of, of uh, self-initiated housing associations. And in the syndicate and habitat, there's also solidarity transfer. So more established and financially stronger projects, usually the older projects that already paid off some or all of their debts, help newer and less financially stable projects by uh, transferring transferring money. So there's a particular 
amount of the rent paid, I think with the old projects, it's 25 cents per square meter or something like that. And uh, with the newer projects, it's 10 cents per, mm -hmm. per square meter, which is tiny, but in the end is enough to help or say there's suddenly something which must be renovated or done mm -hmm. in the yard or so, then there is a, um, a solidarity fund from, from which to take that money. And the fact that the residents of the houses in these models uh, actually rent their apartments uh, is part of the reason that they don't receive support and subsidies from the public authorities. There again, you have this um, interesting situation of looking at what the government and the planning authorities will actually support and what not. So here's a model that in essence does the same as the Baukopen or, or other self-initiated housing associations with the main difference that they remove these buildings from the market so that there cannot be speculation on them for profit. And for that reason, they are not subsidized and they are not supported. They are not recognized in that manner by the government and by planning authorities. And in the case of the syndicate, in, in one particular case with a, an association, um, the, the local government even spelled it out precisely in that way, that their goal as a local government is to further um, the generation of private property. Mm -hmm. So that's a very ideological statement of furthering private property and therefore not subsidizing or supporting initiatives which do not generate private party, mm -hmm. property. And therefore, I think that starts to position this within sort of a political or ideological um, context that I think is important to, to, uh, to point out. With that said, it would be unfair to attribute those uh, aspects to the people who, who uh, join or start self-housing initiatives. Um, um, th generally, the motives are um, quite, you know, positive and, and sound very different to that analysis. Yes. And I, I think I, at the start, we talked about the different groups, why um, that can be characterized when talking about self-initiated housing groups. And I think that also is linked with the motives. And of course, there's uh, cost efficiency that we talked about before. That is a obvious driver or reason to many. And it's also about this um, that I think we also uh, started to talk about before, this uh, customization and driver of individualism for being part in a self-initiated housing group. And um, then also bound with that is this DIY factor that um, you, you have put so much time um, and knowledge into this building and um, you have customized it to your own needs. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, an identification. Exactly. With you're being part of it and you're yeah. really, it's not just a product. Yeah, it's not only about the dwelling, but it's also about um, having been part of that. That also leads to the third main motive one can argue for, which is communitarianism. And um, 
that is defined as, and now I quote from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, the idea is that human identities are largely shaped by different kinds of constitutive communities or social relations, and that this conception of human nature should inform our moral and political judgments, as well as policies and institutions. And um, I read this one article where they talk a bit more about the motives of self-initiated housing groups. And they argue that um, when people come together and, and create housing, it's not only about, as you said, needing the product. So in that case, it's the dwelling itself, but also this communitarian project that brings communities together in the development process and also... Uh, helps to foster social cohesion. Yeah. So, but I still think that that's a certain framing of the the issue because it's similar, I think, to to in the discussion about gentrification. If it's actually within the responsibility of, say, um, students or or young people, you know, the the dinkies, the double income, no kid. Um, people who move into a hip area because it's hip, so they want to live there, but they have a higher socioeconomical capital and therefore they push rents and bring in, uh, or businesses follow them, which, which start to change and gentrify the area. I think there is a responsibility of at least being aware of it. I think there is. However, also a, a problem and issue when you start to place too much responsibility on the individual, mm -hmm. because you could also argue if there was enough affordable housing throughout the city, then it wouldn't be such an issue with gentrification because you, you uh, would still be able to afford to live somewhere and there wouldn't be those processes of um, or dislocation. Yeah. So, so. But, but I then th still course. think that the, 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 the responsibility is one of awareness, largely. And it's a bit of a cop-out to say um, that, well, you know, uh, that's not your intention or, or so, or it's a natural process or mm -hmm. why shouldn't we or so. Uh, for example, quite a funny example in, in Berlin, um, there was a little bit of a conflict between different uh, leftist groups um, also because not that uncommonly um, former leftist people who advanced or now are part of the cultural class and earn a higher income are also um, quite interested in such ideas as self-initiated housing and also the ecological profile and so on so and there was a bit of a conflict between leftist groups because one in particular or members of one lefted group group in particular were members of such a um, self-initiated housing initiative um, and were then criticized by other leftist groups mm -hmm. who, who felt that that was uh, a bit contradictory mm -hmm. and also another very funny example of of um, self-initiated housing association in treptow in in berlin that gave themselves uh, a certificate so that they just made it up and put it on their website giving the, their building project a certificate of non-gentrification basically kind of promising the people 
living in the area already that their project would not contribute to mm-hmm. gentrification, which I think is <laughs> so funny because, you know, awarding yourself uh, a certificate for something which, according to any kind of a sociological analysis, isn't true. Even if you do all you can, there will be some um, uh, gentrification um, effect mm-hmm. of the project. We have gone on for quite a long time now, so we have to come to an end. But um, thank you so much for listening. And let us know what you think about the topic and what you want to hear more about. Let's talk about cities. Mm-hmm.